Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. The Jews, in the days of the Old Testament and the days of the New Testament, put a lot of stock in the family histories. Joachim Jeremias, a great New Testament scholar of the last generation, said that in biblical genealogy, the Hebrew people found a lot of their encouragement and a lot of meaning in their life. Because these genealogies were important to them for a number of reasons. Number one, it was important because it certified their identity as a Jew and as a recipient of the blessings of God promised to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. And that was important for them. Secondly, it stipulated a, where these individuals would live in Canaan. When Joshua brought the children of Israel across the Jordan River, they began to divide the land of Canaan up into tribal territories. And if you were of the tribe of Simeon, you lived in a certain place. If you were the tribe of Benjamin, you lived in a certain place. If you were the tribe of Judah, you lived in a certain place. And so it was important for them to know their family history, to know what tribe uh, they were associated with, and what parcel of land would be theirs in the promised land. Thirdly, it determined whether or not a man could serve as a priest in the worship of the Hebrew people because the priesthood was restricted to uh, the tribe of Levi and to the family of Aaron. And so if you could not trace your lineage back to the household of Aaron or the tribe of Levi, you could not serve as a priest in Israel. Four, it checked the purity of your bloodline. The Hebrew people were very concerned about uh, keeping a pure bloodline without any mingling of Gentile blood, without any mingling of um, any other group of individuals, pagan or uh, other religions or whatever. They wanted to maintain a pure bloodline because they were a holy people specifically called by God to be his people. Five, it ensured that the special lineage that God had chosen, that would be the Hebrew people, the special lineage that God had chosen through whom would come the Messiah. They wanted to be very, very meticulous in ensuring the bloodline, particularly the line of Judah, because that was the tribe through which God would bless the Hebrew people with the Messiah. So these five items were very, very important to the Hebrew people, and that's why tracing their lineage was uh, a very important uh, work for uh, these people. Now, just as an aside note, in AD 70, when Titus brought the Roman legions into Judah, 
and into Jerusalem and destroyed the city and dispersed the Hebrew people to the four winds, most if not all of the records of the Hebrew people's lineage were destroyed. And so it's been a very difficult task because of the generations that have followed that uh, time of uh, destruction and exile. It's been a very difficult time for the Hebrew people to be able to trace their lineage back to a particular tribe, particularly the tribe of Judah through which the Messiah would come. However, it's not really necessary that we be concerned about that because the Messiah has come. And therefore, it is not necessary for us to look any longer at tracing the lineage of certain Jewish people back to the tribe of Judah in anticipation of the coming Messiah. Jesus has been born. Jesus has offered his life as the sacrifice for sin. He has been resurrected. He has ascended to the Father. He is the Messiah that God has promised. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, please, to Luke chapter 3. We're going to do some Bible study this morning, so I hope you will have your Bible at hand. If you do not have one, there's one in the hymnal rack in front of you. You may take and use that one, if you will. Luke chapter 3. There are two genealogy tables in the New Testament with regard to to Jesus Christ. You find one in Matthew chapter 1. You find the other in Luke chapter 3. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 3 first because it's a very particular genealogy table, different in a lot of ways from that uh, one found in Matthew. So in Luke chapter 3 verses 23 to 38, we read the genealogy of Jesus Christ that's traced all the way back to Adam. You find that in verse 38. The genealogy of Jesus traced all the way back to Adam. Why? Why all the way back to Adam? Because Adam is the beginning of the human race. And the work of the Messiah would affect the entire human race. Dr. Luke, who wrote this gospel, he was a Gentile. He was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. But he was a Gentile, and he was very meticulous in putting together the story of Jesus Christ. His gospel was written primarily to Gentiles, but also to Jews. And the emphasis of his gospel was to stress the humanity of Jesus the Christ. He wanted people to know that the Son of God was also the Son of Man. And that he not only was fully God in all of his essence and character and nature and attributes, but he was also fully man in his nature as well. And so Dr. Luke, in his gospel, gives us 
some very insightful information on the humanity of Jesus, his emotions, his thoughts, the things that concerned him, the things that affected him, because those same things affect us as well. And so we read of this this genealogy that goes from Mary all the way back to Adam. And in giving us this genealogy, Luke wanted us to understand that at the very fountainhead of humanity, God the Father had made a promise that only his Messiah would fulfill. And you find that promise in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, where God in his judgment of Satan says these words, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your descendants or your seed and her seed. He, speaking of the descendant of the woman, He will bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. Now, I don't know that Adam and Eve, who were within earshot of this conversation, I don't know that they understood all that God meant when he gave these words. But down through the course of history... We have recorded in Scripture the unfolding fulfillment of this promise. This word that was given as a judgment to Satan specifically states a certain individual that would come and would destroy Satan, even though Satan would temporarily injure him. This is an unconditional promise of God that a Messiah would come who would defeat Satan and deliver mankind from God's judgment for sin. Jesus fulfilled that promise. And he is a direct descendant of Adam and Eve. Now I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. We read the genealogy of Jesus Christ going back to Abraham and to David. You find that in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why does Matthew trace the genealogy of Jesus back to David and Abraham and doesn't go all the way back to Adam as Luke went all the way back to Adam? Well, because the writer of this gospel is different from the writer of the gospel of Luke. Matthew was a disciple of Jesus. He was a Jew. And he wrote his gospel specifically to the Jews for the purpose of identifying Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah. 
that he is indeed the king of the Jews. And so to prove that point, he traces the lineage of Jesus Christ back through Joseph to David and back through Mary to David and then back beyond David to Abraham, the father of the Hebrew people. And he does this to show that Abraham, the head of the Hebrew people, would also be the fountainhead through whom the Messiah would come. And the Messiah would affect all of the sons and daughters of Abraham in his ministry. And so you have the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And what's the significance of that? Well, if you turn back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. So let's turn all the way back to the first book in the Bible, chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. You will recognize this is the covenant that God made with Abraham that in turn made him the father of the Hebrew nation. Genesis 12, verse 1, Now the Lord had said to Abraham, Get out of your country and from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Don't forget that last clause. This is also an unconditional promise of God. An unconditional covenant of God promised to Abraham. And in this covenant, there are a couple of things that God has promised Abraham and his descendants. Number one, Abraham would have a countless number of descendants that would form their own nation. And these descendants and this nation would be a peculiar people, a particular people to the Lord God. They were not to be like the other peoples of the earth. They were not to be like the other nations on the face of the earth. They were to be specifically blessed by God. They were to be given certain privileges by God. And they would be specifically blessed by the Lord in a number of different ways, which we'll speak of in here in just a moment. Second of all, this covenant promised their own homeland. They would have their own homeland. We know, as we read through the Old Testament, that that promise was realized when when, uh, Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt and to the banks, to the western banks 
or yes, to the banks of the Jordan River. Moses was not able to lead the children of Israel across the Jordan and into the land. But his protege did lead the children of Israel into the promised land. And under Joshua's leadership, the land was divided to the various tribes of Israel. Now we know in the course of time, because of the sin of the Hebrew people, God exiled them out of the land. And again, as I mentioned in AD 70, when Titus led the legions of the Romans into Judah, into Jerusalem, completely destroyed the city, the Jews were cast to the four winds and did not come back into the land as a people until 1947. But even today, they do not occupy all of the land promised them through Abraham. But that day will come. That day will come when Israel will inhabit all of the promised land that God gave to them in this covenant. Third, God promised that Abraham would have a revered name forever. That all the peoples of the earth will acknowledge Abraham as the servant of God and as the fountainhead of God's people. Four, Israel would be blessed with certain blessings and they in turn would become a blessing to the nations of the earth. So the question has to be asked, how were the families of the earth to be blessed by the Hebrew people? How would God bless the Gentile nations through the Jewish nation? First of all, the Hebrew people would become a storehouse of the knowledge of God. They would be the repository of God's commandments and statutes and precepts and oracles and laws. They would hear directly from God those things that God required of them and requires of all people if they're to know Him as the true and living God. Secondly, the history of the Hebrew people would reveal the interactive power of God, His glory, His purpose, His grace, and His mercy poured out upon and poured through His people. We can go back into the Old Testament and we can learn a lot about God as we see how God interacted with His people. How God led his people, how God punished his people, how God blessed his people, how God honored his people, how God dealt with his people day in and day out. And so now we have a history of how God interacts with humanity. Third, through the Hebrew nation, a Messiah would come. And he would save mankind from God's wrath of judgment upon sin. Jesus is the fulfillment of that covenant. And he is a direct descendant of Abraham. Interesting to note something that the Hebrew people long ago had forgotten. 
And that was through them, specifically through the tribe of Judah, the earth would be blessed by the coming of the Messiah. And he would not be just a Jewish Messiah. He would be the Messiah of all mankind. He would not come just to redeem Israel. He would come to redeem all lost souls. But you also notice in Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 that he is a descendant of King David. And to understand this particular aspect of the genealogy, we have to turn to 2 Samuel. So turn right in your Bibles to 2 Samuel, not but a few books over from where you're at in Genesis, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And here you have another covenant of God, an unconditional covenant of God made with King David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, excuse me, chapter 7, verses 10 through 17. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 10 through 17. This is the Lord speaking to David through the prophet Nathan. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people, Israel, and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house, speaking directly to David. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, when you die, David, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son." If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Again, this is an unconditional covenant of God. And it's given specifically to David. And in this covenant, God stipulates a number of things that are important for us to understand. First of all, he reaffirms that the promised land is the possession of the Hebrew people the sons and the daughters of Israel. They haven't possessed that land in toto yet, but again, one day they will. They will have all of the land that Abraham looked upon when he first came in to Canaan. And this will be their homeland forever. Second, a promise to David's son, Solomon, is given in this covenant. 
And God is saying that your son Solomon will succeed you as king of Israel. And your son Solomon will build my temple in Jerusalem. David was not permitted to build the temple of Jerusalem because God would not allow bloody hands to build his holy temple. David was a warrior king. David had killed many of the enemies of God during the campaigns that led him to be king and as the king securing the the people of Israel in the land. But God would not permit bloody hands to build his temple. Solomon, his son, would be given that opportunity to build the sacred temple of God. Third, there is a another son of David who will rule over a kingdom. Unlike the kingdom of David, a physical kingdom, a temporary kingdom, a human kingdom, this other son will rule over an eternal kingdom. This son is not named here, but we know as we read through the scriptures that this son that God is talking about is Jesus. He is the one who has fulfilled this covenant, and he is thy direct descendant of Adam and Eve through Abraham and through David. Now I want you to go to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel was written after King David died. Turn to the right from 2 Samuel and go to the book of Daniel, almost to the end of the Old Testament. Chapter 7, verses 13 through 18. The children of Israel have lived for centuries in the land, but their disobedience angered God. And God sent the Assyrian army to conquer the northern tribes of Israel. And a number of years later, he sent the Babylonian Empire in to destroy the southern tribe of Judah. And so the book of Daniel was written while the Jews are in exile in Babylon. They have run their course insofar as being free to live in the land of promise, enjoying the blessings of God, living under the freedom of their own laws and under their own rulers. A hard lesson they had to learn for disobedience, for idolatry, for disobeying the commandments of God, for not honoring the Sabbath of God. But while they're in Babylonian captivity, Daniel, one of the young men, one of the princes of Israel that was carried away into exile, has a vision. And in chapter 7, beginning in verse 13, he gives us the substance of that vision. Daniel 7, beginning in verse 13. I was watching in the night... In the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, 
He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. What is key here is the identification of this one who stands before the ancient of days to receive an everlasting kingdom. Daniel says that in this vision he saw one like the Son of Man. This is the first time in Scripture that this title is used. And it is a messianic title. It is the title that would identify the Messiah of God. It is interesting to note that in the New Testament, while we recognize Jesus as the Son of God, the favorite title that he used almost invariably to identify who he is, is the Son of Man. And so the unnamed individual that God spoke to David through Nathan, this son that would come, and he would be the king over an eternal kingdom. Daniel further identifies him as the son of man. We find in the New Testament that Jesus, again, is the one who fulfills that covenant promise to David. Now, if you trace carefully the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 16, you'll find that he is a direct descendant of King David through Solomon, David's first son with Bathsheba. And the line goes on down from Solomon to Joseph, Mary's husband, who was not the father of Jesus, biologically, but was the adopted father of Jesus. Jesus was Mary's son that she bore before their marriage was consummated. But Joseph adopted Jesus as his own child. So he was the adoptive father of Jesus, which makes Jesus legally entitled to the throne of Israel through his adoptive father, Joseph, who could trace his lineage all the way back to David through Solomon. Important to note that. This lineage establishes the legal line of Jesus as the king of the Jews. But when you go to Luke chapter 3, verses 23 to 38, you'll find that Jesus is a direct descendant of King David through Nathan. Nathan is the third son of David with Bathsheba. This line is traced again from David through Bathsheba all the way down to Mary. This establishes the biological line of Jesus as the king of the Jews. And so you have Jesus Christ, the legal descendant of David, the biological descendant of David, who has the right to be 
the king of the Jews. One final thought concerning the genealogies. You'd note when you compare these two genealogies that the bulk of the genealogical lists deal with men, deal with males. Now, there's a reason for that. I'm not going to get into it because I don't want to upset half the congregation this morning. (laughs) But the Hebrew people were concerned about their line as it was passed on through father to son to father to son to father to son. However, Matthew includes the names of four women. Luke does not, but Matthew does. Matthew gives us the name of, well, he names three women and refers to one, not by name. Tamar in verse 3, Matthew 1, 3. Rahab, verse 5. Ruth, verse 5. And Matthew alludes to Bathsheba in verse 6. Now I know that you know who these women are. Two of them are prostitutes. One is an adulteress. And the other one is an outcast and a Gentile. Wayne Jackson says, quote, The sinless Son of God derived his physical existence from a sinful ancestry mingled with Gentile genetics. Christ thus becomes a light to the Gentiles and a Savior for all sinful humanity. And I'm so glad that Matthew included the names of these women in his genealogy table. Because Jesus Christ came to save all who have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He came to save those who were prostitutes. He came to save those who were adulterers and adulteresses. He came to save those who are outcasts. He came to save those who were despised and rejected by men. He came to save all who have been affected by the power of sin in their lives. He is a Christ for all humanity. Not just the Messiah of the Jews, but the Savior to all who put their faith and trust in Him. That's what the genealogy tables should say to us as we read through them. You look at the names of these individuals, and some of them are stellar people, but a lot of them are rabble. Some of them are great individuals. And even the great individuals that are named had their dark side, did they not? Abraham, called by God to be The father of his chosen people was a liar from time to time and he lied to save his own skin from Pharaoh. David, the great king, the king by whom all kings would be judged. And yet David was a murderer and an adulterer. Solomon, the great son of David, the one who would build the temple of God, was given the gift of wisdom. And Scripture says, is the wisest man who's ever lived. And yet he had a thousand women in his home and in his harem. Not very wise, was he? (laughs) 
Well, he had to be wise to handle all those women. Even the great men in the history of the line of Jesus were failures. And yet out of the failures, out of the mixed bloods, out of the sinfulness of mankind, God gave his son to save all who've sinned. Now, why is all of this necessary? I know that you read genealogies, and I know when you get to the book of Numbers, you get to those names and the begats and all of that, and you, you kind of like, you know, you get numb, and your mind kicks into neutral. And it's probably the same way when you get to the Gospels. You get to Matthew 1.1 and you've got all these begats. And so you kind of skip over that and get on to the other stuff. And you do the same with Luke chapter 3. But why? Why is it important that we have these genealogy tables in the Old Testament and specifically the two that we have in the New Testament with regard to Jesus? I can't say it any better than Michael Wilkins who wrote these words. And it's a, it's a fairly lengthy quote, but it's an important quote. He states, quote, The crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus were the core of the preaching of the early church. When you look at the New Testament, from the book of Acts on through the letters and all the way to the Revelation, that's the major theme of the Apostle Paul. That's the major theme of John. That's the major theme of Peter. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. We have no Christianity apart from that. Amen? That was the central core of the preaching of the early church. Quote, The early Christians had seen these mighty events occur, and they were profoundly struck with uniqueness of Jesus as the atoning sacrifice for the sins of humanity. Therefore, they had to carefully document these events of Jesus' life and ministry and give credible answers to the challenges against Jesus in their day. You know, there were a lot of people who didn't accept Jesus as the Messiah. As a matter of fact, the people that Jesus came to save rejected him, hated him, and from the very beginning of his ministry sought ways to arrest him and kill him. His own people didn't even believe in him. His own family didn't believe that he was Messiah, Son of God. As such, Mr. Wilkins continues... As such, they were diligent historians with the theological foundation of their faith firmly embedded in the facts of history. We must be just as diligent today. We must be just as diligent today. The challenges to the person and the work of Jesus are as ferocious today as they were during the first century. 
Pluralism, the acceptance of all religions. Pluralism, secularism, secular humanism, relativism, pose direct challenges to the uniqueness of Jesus in our day and require that we rest our beliefs on the firm foundation of the facts of history and not on wishful thinking, emotional subjectivity, or historical speculation. And this is where we're at today. All you have to do is turn on the television and watch any one of a number of specials during Easter time or during Christmas time and hear even from theologians all of the falsehood and the lies and the twisting of scripture and the passing off as myth that people propose to be true about Jesus. And there are some theologians who don't even believe that Jesus ever existed. Because there are very, very few credible records outside of the Bible that even mention him. And so Christianity is under attack today because Jesus is under attack today. Our faith is under attack today because the Bible is under attack today. And one of the problems, dear friends, why, uh, why this attack succeeds more often than not is because we do not know the Jesus of the Bible. And if we do know the Jesus of the Bible, very rarely do we speak of him to anyone else but our own family members. Our faith is based squarely upon the truth, which is God's Word. Because the truth of God's Word from Genesis to Revelation speak of the one whom God promised would come to be the Redeemer of mankind, to be the Savior of mankind. And he would be a descendant of Adam and Eve because the promise was given to them. He would be a descendant of Abraham because he is the core of that covenant. He would be a descendant of David because... He would be the king that God had promised would come. And every aspect of his life is recorded by the prophets who wrote of him hundreds of years before he ever lived. While they believed in the Christ who would come, you and I believe in the Christ who came. And so even of us, we must be well-schooled and trained in the uniqueness of Jesus among the religions of the world, among the philosophical schools, and among political ideologies, end quote. And so let me challenge you this morning by closing with these words. We have a promise given by God to Adam and Eve in Eden. A salvation that's been promised. We have a salvation which plan was formally represented in the covenant given to Abraham. We have a salvation governed by the house of David, a salvation that is legitimate and filled with grace and with mercy.
And that promise is fulfilled in the Son of Mary. Jesus, the only person anointed by God the Father to be Christ and King of His covenant of salvation. And I call you, I call you to receive that salvation today. If you've never confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I call you to receive that salvation by committing your life to Jesus. And for those of us who are saved, I call you to faithfully represent that Christ to all you come in contact with in your businesses, in your schools, in your neighborhoods, in your places of recreation, that people will see Jesus Christ in you and they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. Stand with me, if you will, please, in prayer. I'm going to ask David to come. Prepare a song for the invitation. I'm going to ask Pastor Chris and Pastor Joe to stand with me at the altar. Today, dear friend, if you are ready to commit your life to Jesus Christ, whom to know is life everlasting, then this invitation is for you to come and to do exactly what Scripture tells us to do. And that is, if you will confess with your lips the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Why are these genealogies important? Why is the preaching and the teaching of Jesus Christ important? Because we live in a world that's controlled by Satan. We live in a culture that is lost and dying and on the road to hell. And without Jesus Christ, dear friend, there is no rescuing you from the eternal judgment of God. Not because I say so, but because God's word says so. Jesus is the only one whom God has anointed, whom God has sent to be the Christ and the King of salvation. And I pray, dear friend, you will come embracing him as your Christ and as your King. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.